Hello, welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of important developments in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law. We hope that it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. This is episode two. We are recording on the 13th of November 2018, and today we're going to discuss cases on consent after Montgomery, focusing on judgments in the last year or two. There will be a fact sheet to accompany this podcast, and details of how to obtain it will be given at the end. I'm delighted to be joined by two colleagues from King's Chambers, both specialists in clinical negligence and personal injury litigation, Helen Mulholland and Richard Borrett. The cases we're going to look at all concern the giving of advice and information to patients and the obtaining of consent to treatment. When it comes to the delivery of treatment itself, the courts apply the Bolam test, named after the case of Bolam and Free and Hospital Management Committee from the 1950s. A doctor is not negligent if they act in accordance with a practice that would be considered proper by a responsible body of professional opinion, even if other professionals in the field would have acted differently. Uh, as it happens, the case of Bolam concerned not only allegations of negligent administration of treatment, but also alleged failures to obtain informed consent to the treatment. But since the 1950s, in cases like Sidaway, Pierce and Chester and Afshar, the courts have moved away from applying the Bolam test to the issue of consent, and rather than allowing the profession to set the standard of what information should be given to a patient, the courts have increasingly emphasised the preeminence of patient autonomy. Then, in 2015 the Supreme Court had the opportunity to look once again at the correct approach that should be taken to consent and advice cases in clinical negligence in the case of Montgomery and Lanarkshire. Um, Helen, can you tell us briefly about the facts of Montgomery? Of course. Uh, In 1999, Mrs Montgomery was expecting her first baby. In terms of physical characteristics, she was a woman of small stature, she was just over five feet, and she was an insulin-dependent diabetic. And that is and was significant because women with diabetes will often have babies who are bigger and there can be a particular concentration of weight around the shoulders. In terms of Mrs Montgomery, the court described her as a highly intelligent woman. She had a degree in molecular biology. The issue concerning the weight of the baby and the size of the baby, and indeed her small stature, was significant because there is a condition, a situation, which can arise in labour called shoulder dystocia, where the baby becomes stuck and the shoulders are not able to progress on vaginal delivery. That's an obstetric emergency because if unresolved, it can result in serious damage to the arm and in particular to the brachial plexus, and it can also result in brain damage as the baby is deprived of oxygen. And it's a matter of concern for all women, but particularly for those who are expecting large babies. Now, Mrs Montgomery was told that she was expecting a large baby, but she was not told 
of the risk of shoulder dystocia or of the resultant risks, very serious risks, to mother and baby should that arise. And she said that if she had, and if she'd been given that information, she would have elected to have a caesarean section. Now, the expert evidence in the court of session, the, it was a Scots case, was that a reasonable and responsible body of obstetricians would not have mentioned shoulder dystocia to her. The experts agreed that there was indeed a 9 to 10% risk of shoulder dystocia in diabetic mothers. And it was that expert evidence, the court concluded, that meant that the claimant could not succeed in her case. Uh, and the court also, as it happens, made some very questionable factual findings, but we can leave those to one side. But ultimately, that is the reason why her case failed at first instance. And what did the Supreme Court uh, hold about the test that should be applied? Well, the Supreme Court undertook a very detailed analysis, not only of Mrs Montgomery's case, but also of the state of the law on consent at that time. And interestingly and importantly, the GMC, the General Medical Council, was an intervener in the appeal. And the Supreme Court referred to the GMC guidance on consent, which was in place at the time, which quite honestly was at odds with the state of the law. Um, that's set out at paragraph 77 of the Supreme Court judgment. The Supreme Court concluded that the doctor-patient relationship had really evolved and changed significantly and that the days of the paternalistic approach Doctor Knows Best had or ought to have disappeared. And the paternalistic element was very present in the Montgomery case. The claimant's treating obstetrician in that case had said in her evidence, well, if I told her about shoulder dystocia, she would have wanted a caesarean, as would all diabetic ladies in that position. Uh, and that, in a sense, is exactly the point and exactly why the law needed to evolve, in, in my humble opinion. Um, the Supreme Court considered Sidaway and said Sidaway was not just an endorsement of Bolan. And in fact, the seed for change was very much sown in some of the speeches in that House of Lords case. And the Supreme Court said it shouldn't just be the pushy patient, perhaps someone like me, who gets the information that they want by asking and questioning and it shouldn't be questions that prompt the information forth, uh, being forthcoming from the clinician. And in fact, the Supreme Court said that the less informed person actually needs more information from the doctor. Crucially, the Supreme Court referred to a test of materiality. And it set it out in this way. It said whether in the circumstances of a particular case, a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance to the risk. So that's partly an objective test, which is the reasonable person, and partly a subjective test in the patient's position. And materiality, the Supreme Court said, should not be reduced to mere percentages. It talked about the doctor's role in materiality and in the discussion as being a dialogue. It's a dialogue between patient and clinician. It's not just a speech from the doctor. And it said finally that the therapeutic exception ought not to be abused. In this case, the therapeutic exception was the, refer the reference to the caesarean section and ultimately that it would not be desirable for everybody to be requesting or indeed having caesarean sections since they come with their own risks in any event. Uh, Richard, I think it's fair to say the Montgomery decision 
caused a great deal of anxiety in medical circles. Why, why was that? Or what were their foremost concerns? Some clinicians were concerned that the retrospective application of the uh, test in Montgomery could open the floodgates, as it were, for claims in relation to doctors' past actions. Some were concerned on a very practical level that there was simply insufficient time, particularly in NHS practice, to do what was required by Montgomery, particularly considering the need for a discussion with the claim with the patient. There was a concern that this was a, a radical move away from the English law's traditional respect for clinical expertise, which I think Helen and Montgomery described as paternalism. But some did argue, um, as Helen has already noted, that the standard imposed merely reflected good practice that had already been part of GMC guidance since at least 2008. All right, so let, let's look at some of the case law since Montgomery. That This will have to be quite a rapid gallop through some of the cases. But let's start with the, the Montgomery formulation, which, which begins our quote from the Supreme Court. The doctor is therefore under a duty to take reasonable care to ensure that the patient is aware of any material risks involved in any recommended treatment and of any reasonable alternative or variant treatments. And Helen, you've already talked about the test of materiality that they then then mentioned. So it begins with an assertion that a doctor has a duty to take reasonable care to ensure the patient is aware of material risks. Helen, I think um, our colleague at King's Chambers, Jeremy Rusak, took a case to the Court of Appeal that touched on this question. Uh, Yes, indeed he did. It's the case of Worrell and Antoniadu. Um, and perhaps that highlights that this isn't this is only reasonable care and not absolute care that needs to be taken. In that case, the claimant it was a cosmetic surgery case. It was the claimant's case that had she been told that she uh, would need a mastopexy fairly soon after her, so that's an uplift operation fairly soon after her breast augmentation, she would not then have had it at that time. She would have delayed it. And she said that she had been told, oh, you won't need a mastopexy for five to ten years. Actually, the expert said if that that evidence had been given, if that information had been given, there would have been negligence. The judge didn't find that the doctor in question had said that, but he found a considerable level of confusion, really, on the part of the claimant. And he found that there had been this discussion, a fairly hasty discussion, Uh, at the end of which the defendant had unintentionally allowed the claimant to go away with the impression that she would not need a mastopexy for five to ten years. Um, The the judge said the situation was ripe for misunderstanding and it certainly doesn't sound when one reads that, that case as if this were an ideal consent scenario. But the, the, the situation was something like claimants saying, well, are we talking months, years, five, ten years for a mastopexy? And the doctor saying, well, sooner or later. And somehow from that, the claimant took away the message that it would be five to ten years. And the court said that, that was not sufficient for the claimant to prove her case. It perhaps wasn't ideal, but there wasn't any duty on that practitioner to um, clear up the misunderstanding if she had known about the misunderstanding, of course, it would be yeah. different. But she didn't. She didn't know what the claimant had taken from that conversation. Yeah. Uh, there have also been a couple of cases in the last year or so that have shown that the Bolam test may not be wholly excluded when the courts consider the question of consent to treatment. Um, perhaps the most important is DUCE and Worcester Acute Hospitals NHS Trust, a Court of Appeal decision. And the Court of Appeal said 
that Montgomery involves a twofold test. First, what risks associated with an operation were or should have been known to the medical professional in question? And second, whether the patient should have been told about such risks by reference to whether they were material risks. So the second of those tests is a matter for the court to determine. But the Court of Appeal said that the first remained a matter of professional expertise. So the, the Bolam test should be applied and induce. The claimant failed to prove that the gynaecologists looking after her were or should have been aware of the relevant risks that she complained she'd not been told about so that because she failed in that respect, the second part of the Montgomery approach, the question of materiality, didn't even arise. And there's another decision, a decision of a Deputy High Court judge in a case called Bailey and George Elliott Hospital, which I think is interesting. The the claimant's allegation in that case was that he hadn't been advised about the availability, risks and benefits of an alternative treatment to the one that was being proposed by those who were managing him. And the Montgomery formulation is that a doctor is under a duty to advise of any reasonable alternative or variant treatments to the one proposed. And the judge in Bailey held that the question of reasonableness of the alternative treatments had to be approached by reference to all the circumstances, including what the doctors ought to have known at the time. So again, that judgment points towards a Bolam approach to the question of what alternative treatments are reasonable and should therefore be the subject of any advice to a patient who's contemplating treatment. So doctors advise, patients decide, but what doctors advise is still in part, at least, to be determined by standards within the profession. Now, Helen, you mentioned earlier that the Supreme Court in Montgomery looked at some particular aspects of how the test might be applied, and the first was about materiality. What constitutes materiality? And it it shouldn't be reduced to a question of just percentages. Well, Um, indeed, yeah, that's absolutely the case. But, of course, percentages do have a role to play, particularly in the expert evidence. And two cases which were uh, defended successfully by John Whitting QC, cases of A and of Tasman, both obstetric cases, considered the statistics in a great great deal of detail. Um, a concerned a very rare chromosomal abnormality, and her, the claimant had not been advised that her baby might have been suffering from it. She said, had she done so, she would have terminated the pregnancy. And it was a very rare abnormality indeed. The statistical evidence showed that it was somewhere between 1 in a 1,000 and 1 in a 50,000 risk. Obviously, that's an enormous range, uh, but that was the best that the court could do. And the Court of Appeal said, well, there's there's no duty um, to advise on such a risk. Uh, In actual fact, they went on to say the claimant would not have attached significance to it anyway because it was such a small risk. And, in fact, as it happened, they went on to consider whether or not she would have had a termination and found that actually she wouldn't. But what they said was that there was no need to warn about risks which are theoretical and not material. So although percentage risks are perhaps the the be-all and end-all, they are significant. And again, in the, the case of Tasman... Um, again, another obstetric case, and again, John Whitting QC, and again, one in a thousand. Um, and what the Court of Appeal again said was that that relevant risk was so low as to be below that threshold. Uh, interestingly, in another one in a thousand case, which is the case of Hassel, uh, 
which is actually a a case concerning a cervical discectomy. It was a, a neurosurgery case, a spinal surgery case. Um, in that case, there was also a one in a thousand risk, but that was a risk of absolute paralysis, which came to pass, as it can in neurosurgery. And in that case, the court said that the claimant, in a sense, it was a straightforward case because the finding was that the claimant had not been told about it, and so she could not have have given her informed consent. She wasn't told of the risk of paralysis, and she wasn't advised of conservative treatment options, and she was advised of cord damage. But in those terms, and only on the day of surgery, and the court said that that's not sufficient. So, again, an interesting wrinkle in that case, if you like, is that the judge couldn't find the causation of the injury, the cause of the paralysis. But because of those findings on consent, the claimant succeeded. Um, And that's really... I was always taught early on in my legal career and at um, the stage of studying law that we had no doctrine of informed consent. Actually, I think we have progressed now to the stage when we have, um, and I think that's probably um, reflected really in those cases. And I think it was the same judge in the Hassel case as in the first one you mentioned, A and East Kent Hospital. Yes. So interesting. But it, it, I suppose, shows that you cannot just reduce it to percentages, but as you say, that doesn't mean percentage risk or the extent of the risk is wholly irrelevant. It clearly is relevant. A second point Supreme Court um, made in Montgomery was about the importance of doctor-patient dialogue, Richard. Uh, Yes, in Montgomery, the court said that the the doctor's duty is not fulfilled by bombarding the patient with technical information, which she cannot reasonably be expected to grasp, let alone by routinely demanding a signature on a consent form. And that was followed in a case called Thefo, which is another discectomy case, the facts of which for present purposes aren't necessary to go into. Um, There was an issue about a a very brief discussion that took place prior to surgery, um, and it seems to have been immediately prior to surgery. And the court said it's routine for a surgeon immediately prior to surgery to see the patient. But this is neither the place nor the occasion for a a surgeon for the first time to explain to a patient the relevant risks and benefits. And the court noted the reason for that is that there's a mutual momentum towards the surgery that's hard to halt and adopted um, counsel's phrase that there was no adequate time and space for a sensible dialogue to occur. Um, This really reflects the GMC guidance, which says you should explore these matters with patients, listen to concerns, ask for and respect their views and encourage them to ask questions. I think the key phrase to take from that is adequate time and space for this conversation to, to occur. Okay, I think we'll come we'll come back to that because I think it has lots of practical implications for medical professionals. But I should mention the third point that was mentioned by the Supreme Court was about the so-called therapeutic exception to the requirement to advise patients about material risks. And that was uh, that the exception to the requirement would, ar- would arise or could arise where it would be harmful to the patient to advise them of certain risks or complications. But the Supreme Court emphasised that this was a very limited exception. It mustn't be abused by medical professionals. And it was not the same as saying that a doctor can decide for themselves what is in the best interests of a patient to know. And unsurprisingly, there haven't been, so far as I'm aware, any subsequent reported court judgments on the therapeutic exception. Okay, so we've looked at Montgomery in relation to breach of duty. 
Just a couple of cases we might mention in relation to its impact on questions of causation. One was a case taken to the Court of Appeal uh, by, again, another colleague from King's Chambers, um, Satinda Hunjan, and it's called Webster and Burton Hospitals. And without going into the facts of the case too much, but it was another obstetric case uh, that, as a result of the negligence, the court at trial had determined uh, that nevertheless the obstetricians involved acted in accordance with a responsible body of expert medical opinion in allowing the pregnancy to go to term with, unfortunately, uh, harmful results for the baby. Uh, The Court of Appeal said, and I quote, it's now clear from Montgomery that this is no longer the correct approach. So the correct approach should have been what would or should the obstetricians have advised the mother and what would she have decided to do having been advised of material risks. And the Court of Appeal found, quite readily in that case, because of her particular background and characteristics, that she would have elected to have an earlier delivery pre-term. And in that uh, case, the harmful consequences would have been avoided. I think one of the interesting things about that case, Nigel, is that in terms of the duty on the clinician and what they are bound to communicate to the patient seems to me in that case to be going a step further because at paragraph 40 of the judgment, the Court of Appeal said, what what should the clinician have told the patient? And the answer is to be found in the last words of the judgment, namely that there was an emerging but recent and incomplete material showing increased risks of delaying labour in cases with this combination of features. So this was really an innovative extra piece of clinical information that people were just starting to get to grips with and yet the Court of Appeal were content to say yes that should have been put to the the claimant, uh, to the patient and she then could have made her informed decision about being induced on due date rather than going over um, beyond that Uh, and that seems to me to be a slightly different factor in that case compared with the the other cases Another issue in relation to causation really flows from a case from 2004, well-known case of Chester and Afshar. Um, Many people thought that that um, excluded the requirement for claimants to have to show that but for negligence in relation to pre-treatment advice, they would not have proceeded with the proposed treatment. But Richard, that was looked looked at in Juice, wasn't it? It was. We've already mentioned. Yes, the 2018 case of Juice. Um, now, it, it, as, as Nigel says, it was thought and it was argued specifically in Juice that the effect of Chester and Afshar was that it created an alternative pathway to causation and provided that the claimant could show that the injury was intimately involved with the duty to warn. The duty was owed um, by the doctor who performed the surgery to which the patient had consented and that the injury was the product of that risk of which they were not warned, then causation is effectively made out and that that is an alternative route that doesn't require but-for causation. Put simply in juice, the Court of Appeal rejected that analysis of Chester and and said that Chester was in fact a finding of but-for causation. The injury, paragraph 58 this is, the injury was a result of the breach of duty because, one, the operation would not have taken place when it did and, two, the risk of injury was very small and so was unlikely to to have occurred 
if the operation had been carried out on a subsequent occasion. And the reason for that, of course, is in Chester. The claimant said that she, had she been warned appropriately, would have delayed the surgery, but she could not prove that she would not have had the surgery. So the Court of Appeal in Juice seems to confirm that the interpretation that many of us put on Chester is uh, incorrect and perhaps is something that needs to be considered again at a high level. I wonder whether it, someone might regard that as a rather strained interpretation of Chester to get to what, again, many would think was actually the right result. <laughs> um, but it, there was an invitation, wasn't there, by Lord Justice Leggett, effectively, to for Chester to be directly challenged, but it, it would have to go to the Supreme Court. It, it would, and I think actually the advocate in that case said that they would be all too happy to, to take up that challenge and take it to the Supreme Court. It seems to me that the analysis of Chester in Deuce is really rather damning. And my own view is that Chester, if it is challenged in the Supreme Court, will not survive, and nor do I think it should. And I take some comfort from that because I've always struggled with Chester. I don't think, I don't think it is sound. I don't think it's a, it, it's a sound decision. I don't think it's um, something that I would be relying on particularly. Yeah. I've always been struck by, it was Lord Hoffman, wasn't it, who talked, very, very short judgment, <laughs> dissenting judgment in Chester, where he talked about the roulette wheel, you know, the, the man who would have gone to the casino on a Thursday, but because of someone's negligence, say, they, they couldn't go on the Thursday, they went on the Friday. And what difference does it make Absolutely. that the chances are the same? So the delay didn't affect the risk that the patient was undergoing. Of course, um, the difficulty is, although we may disagree as to whether Chester and Afshar is right or wrong in principle my difficulty with juice is it seems to ignore some of the specific comments in chester it was said that the right of autonomy and dignity can and ought to be vindicated by a narrow and modest departure from the traditional causation principles whether that's right or wrong is a different matter but it's always seemed to me that chester was a departure um and i can appreciate why juice was decided the way it was um but it seems to me it does need to go back and be reconsidered to give some final and final answer to the question. But I think, in a sense, Chester was paving the way for Montgomery because the I think the decision in Chester was born out of this very laudable idea that the patient should have autonomy. That's how they came to what, in my humble opinion, is an incorrect decision. But that's how they got there. Uh, and then, of course, Montgomery just continued that. Uh, and to a great extent, I'm not sure Montgomery is as groundbreaking as people and particularly medics worried it might be if you think about materiality it would be a very unusual case where a reasonable patient um, would think that something was material that a doctor wouldn't a good doctor is always going to go through those those steps and advise on those material risks just thinking about the realities though of medical practice and that this question Richard you raised it before of time so, what, what, you know, if there's a if you allocated a ten minute outpatient appointment, how, is there time for advice to be given about the material risks of the proposed procedure and all reasonable alternatives? And of course, for a discussion to take place, it's not simply a question of the doctor spending ten minutes explaining. And there might be two or three surgical options, each of which have their own risks and benefits. That could take ten minutes. And then it you could be very time, time consuming indeed. And in fact, in the Antoniadu case the court said that the, the experts looked at a time of I think, an hour and a quarter in one case and half an hour in the other case. And that was well, private cosmetic uh, surgery. Well, and maybe yeah. that's why. But again, I, my, own, my own feeling is that consent is a process 
So um, from what you see in good clinicians, they don't take a 10-minute appointment to do it. They will sow the seed perhaps on the first occasion that surgery is raised, and then they'll, perhaps there'll be leaflets, and then on another occasion there'll be a further discussion. So that it is a process, and the, and the patient's then got time to think about it and go away and come back and ask questions. How, you, how useful is the standard consent form that patients are asked to sign mm, as they're about to be wheeled into theatre? Uh, very little, I would suggest, particularly given what it says in FAFO. Uh, it may be evidence that a conversation's taken place, but if it's taking place at the point that the consent form is signed, i.e. in the uh, anaesthetic room, it's probably too late. Yeah. And those standard consent forms just sort of list, don't they, hematoma, infection, scarring, or what, whatever the particular yes. possible complications would be. They're they don't not normally list evidence. alternatives for a start, yes. which is very important. Yeah. And they don't list, they don't, they don't evidence a discussion. No. So they're only really useful in litigation as some evidence that there was a discussion mm. about risks, but don't go beyond that. It can be useful in terms of dates very often because they're signed and dated, so it can tend to show that something took place on that particular date. But even the forms which are filled out by clinicians don't seem to me to be terribly helpful because they tend to be very standard in terms of what they say. The other problem, of course, is who consents in a busy NHS it's not necessarily going to be the treating surgeon. Very often, I don't know about you, but I very often see consent forms and it's some very much more junior doctor who has apparently taken consent um, and has signed it. And that's unsatisfactory to my mind that it should be somebody either completely different or particularly junior who's doing that. So there have been a number of decided cases on consent in the aftermath of Montgomery. Those cases will have reached that have reached trial show that patient autonomy does reign, but that the courts will still take into account standards set by the profession in relation to a doctor's knowledge about risks and in relation to alternative treatments. The judgments seem to reflect standards of good medical practice, as Richard has mentioned. There hasn't been perhaps a glut of cases before the courts, and the more extreme fears that Montgomery would wreak havoc have so far proved groundless. Well, thank you to Helen and Richard. My name is Nigel Poole, and that was our debrief on consent after Montgomery. If you would like our fact sheet with details of some of the cases we have referred to, then please email podcasts at kingschambers.com. And do look out for information about future debrief podcasts on our website, www.kingschambers.com. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you.